Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib and I'm joined by Andrew Burton. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas has just won uh, the ATP, uh, NATO ATP Finals in his maiden attempt. And uh, who better than Andrew to talk about the, the, the generations of tennis and how this week played out. This gives us some hope of what the future may be looking like. On that note, Andrew, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, Sakib. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime. It's, uh, it was actually quite long due uh, for your uh, return to the podcast, and this is a perfect week. Uh, we had quite a different age group this time. There were four young players. There were like few players with one hand, backhand, and then there were the three perennial, you know, Hall of Famers. So let's start with Dominic Team. Even though he came in short, uh, I was even having my tweet ready to type that Dominic Team is going to win this because somehow I had a feeling not that Sitsipas was winning all the stats. So let's walk through uh, Team's week and the way it unfolded uh, in the final. He did do the heavy lifting, beating Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer and then came in short in the end. Yes, that's right. I mean, Team outlasted Djokovic in what you know, many people were writing up as an instant classic match. He, he was trailing... I think in the final set tie break, he, he was training, trailing three love, uh, two mini breaks, uh, got one of the mini breaks back, but was trailing 4-1 and, and then went on a, a bit of a kick and, and took the tie break 7-5. Um, so he was uh, the in-form player uh, in the Djokovic-Federer Berrettini group um, seemed to take his foot off the gas a little bit in the round robin match against Berrettini. Um, perhaps understandable, there wasn't anything huge riding on it. Team was already qualified at the head of the group because he had four points and he would be joined by either Federer or um, Djokovic, who were playing their final round robin match effectively a quarter-final match. So team was going to qualify first. Berrettini could only get one win, whereas either Djokovic or Federer would get two, so Berrettini wouldn't qualify. It was a little it was a little odd to see team, as I said, sort of take his foot off the gas, particularly in the second set against Berrettini, although a good win for the Italian, and it was good to see him leaving his first World Tour finals with a win. But then team would look quite impressive in uh, beating Zverev in the semi-final. Um, not, a, you know, not, not a match for the time capsule, but a straight sets win. And so I think he came into the, the final with a little bit of swagger. Uh, but then he was up against an opponent in Tsitsipas who, who very rarely gives way on swagger to anyone, I think. If, if, if swagger is uh, what you're looking for in the new ATP, then uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas probably has, has got uh, a surfeit of, of swagger, let's say. I know, very well said. And he definitely has uh, some interesting press quotes adding on to his on-court persona. And today he played at a very high level. He was winning almost all the important stats. And then in the end, played a very clean tie break. And Dominic made a couple of those uh, errors, which were, again, aggressive shots that either one say long and one went through the net. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Sitsipas, again, uh, when you see him, we talk a lot in our DMs 
uh, how impressed are you with his growth? Uh, you know, overall, we were talking about what his favorite surface is. You said he could play everywhere, even medium hard court. I said his best is clay, but now he wins on a fast indoor court. So quite a package right there. Yes. And the thing that um, Sitsipas obviously has, which you, you, you want to see of any player, is you know, that he, he doesn't care who he's facing. So he came up against Federer yesterday and, um, you know, took him on, went toe-to-toe against him. Uh, there were some, I thought, very interesting aspects of the way that, that Sissipas played that um, I hadn't noticed before, particularly his defense in the deuce corner. One of the things that Federer obviously has, has made a living off of is attacking with his forehand and then being able to come to the net on his terms. And Tsitsipas has heavy topspin on the, the backhand side, but he also, when he's asked to defend the deuce corner, he can flip the ball hard and long to the opposite deuce corner and, if, and, and effectively reset the point. And there aren't that many players who can do that really well. I mean, you, you, you have, obviously, the, the past top echelon of players. Um, Juan Martín del Potro was very, very good at doing that and beat Federer a couple of times in Basel on the strength of, of his defense as well as his office. But Sitsipas showed something new to me this week, which was that not just the, the uh, aggressive play, from both wings, but but really solid defense. And once again, uh, as he had against Federer at the Australian Open, uh, put himself in a position where he was defending break points and, and did so very effectively. Went, uh, saved 12 of 12 break points against Federer in Melbourne at the start of the year, saved 11 of 12 in London at the end of the year. So Tsitsipas, um, had looked very good in the group stages. Um, like team came into his final group match with two wins, uh, played Rafael Nadal, uh, won the first set, Nadal won the second set, and then they played a, a hard fought third set, um, which Nadal eventually, uh, one seven five. Nadal was delighted, and then apparently in press afterwards, Sitsipas made comments to the effects of, "Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to die on the court out there. You know, <laughs> I was, I was trying, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't giving it my very last drop of sweat." And and I thought, well, one of the senior players needs to take him aside in the locker room and say, "Yeah, you." you you don't say that, particularly if you've been up against Nadal. Yeah, I, you know, I played against Nadal, but, you know, I wasn't really trying. That that didn't sit right with me. So, um, but he's young. He's, uh, you know, he's got, a, he's got a lot of time potentially at the top. The question is for both team and Tsitsipas and then Medvedev, who also was one of the stories of the second half of 2016, can they back it up on a week-to-week basis? No, I think that's going to be the big conversation uh, as Matt will join the conversation at the top of the hour. I'll save some of those uh, looking ahead scenarios uh, right. 
when he comes in, so we'll have a three-way dialogue. But uh, you did say something very important there. I think Sitsipas and his uh, press demeanor. I think uh, uh, someone also said on Twitter along what you said, but he's always trying to say something profound. That could be a function of age. And I remember uh, uh, Becker was famous for his these kind of one-liners. Of course, the coverage was very different then. Not every word was scrutinized. And uh, he wasn't shying away from the challenge of taking on McEnroe, Connors, and Lendl. Of course, we're going 30 years back in time. Mm-hmm. But the respectful barometer has been the common theme since Federer took the reins and Djokovic and Nadal now have taken it forward. So Sitsipas is definitely a very interesting case study. And, you know, he's not curious. He's not a rebel without a cause. But he's definitely uh, not shying away from saying things. Uh, he probably is respectful to the senior folk. I mean, the top, the, the big three. But, yeah, this is something... Uh, great to look forward to as the years come. Now, as a, as a matchup, Sitsipas and team, two exponents of the one hand back hand, uh, you, you think this is a good rivalry to look ahead? I mean, uh, are they similar in what extent and are they not similar? You know, someone who just watches tennis may not know. Where do you see any, from a fan's point of view, you play tennis yourself. So mm-hmm. break, break down the differences on the two backhands if you can. So I see. Um, both of them hit a very heavy topspin backhand. So it's nearer to a Gasquet or a Vavrinka than it is to the, the, the kind of backhand that Federer or someone like Cole Schreiber hits, I think. Uh, both of them are keen to also go down the line. So both of them will will use their their backhand to uh, you know keep the ball rallying from the ad corner to the ad corner, often with, with very heavy top spin, but then can can redirect the ball and take it down the line. And I thought that uh, team today actually did a better job of of using that shot uh, when particularly in the third set, when he came back into the third set, having gone a breakdown. Um, I think I see Tsitsipas using the, the <laughs> angle a little bit more than uh, team does. So Tsitsipas, one of the things that I think Vavrinka does very well is hit a sharply angled backhand and, and that's a shot that, that Sitsipas likes to use as well. Um, so, so uh, you know, maybe 96%, 97% more similar. You know, the DNA is similar in, in those hmm. two shots. And uh, Andrew, you can correct me if, if I'm uh, wrong, but I found both men to be very comfortable around the net in this match and even this entire week. And we've talked about Dominic team shot selection. So how has he graduated to this player? Again, uh, you know, everyone's version of a complete player may be different, but he seems uh, to be at the court, you know, offense, defense, net, uh, has a huge serve. I mean, he seems like a package yes. himself. Well, I think, yes, you're right, that both of them wanted to come forward uh, several times during the match and not just coming forward when they were drawn in, but, but looking to finish points at the net. Neither player yet is a really good technician with their volleys. So 
both of them tend to swing a little bit at it. Team uh, hit one forehand volley in an attacking position that, that, that went well long. And I, I just remember writing that down as a biff when I was uh, match calling. You know, when it comes to volleys, uh, you know, both of them like to come forward. Both of them use an old court game. Um, I think that uh, neither of them are really technically expert yet at the volley. And team in particular, when he had an attacking forehand volley, uh, sent it long in a fairly straightforward position. Uh, neither of them are as accomplished at Federer in playing defensive volleys. But one of the things that I love to see is tennis being played as a three-dimensional game. So not just having players move side to side on the baseline, but adjust their court position, come forward to the net and, and be able to handle balls that are played at the shoelaces or high overheads. And, and seeing tennis played as a three-dimensional game and seeing players figure out what kind of shots their opponents don't like to hit and, and make them play those in those three dimensions, I think is one of the most enjoyable things about high-quality tennis. And this match had it. So it was one of the most interesting uh, ATP finals, World Tour finals for a, for a very long time. You know, you can go back to uh, Federer against Nadal in uh, 2010, uh, which was a good match, although Federer ran away with it. Uh, Goffin and Dimitrov played a three-set match a couple of years ago, but I didn't think that was quite as high a quality match. And towards the end, it was both players were obviously feeling a little bit tense. Uh, Dimitrov did serve it out, but he, as I remember, he took the scenic route. Um, and apart from that, it's hard to remember final matches uh, being played at that level for a very long time. So a lot to look forward to. Absolutely. And you also mentioned uh, this was high quality and that indeed was a theme for the entire week. Uh, there are a few one-sided matches, but uh, in 15 matches, we got, I think, good five, six matches and that kind of made this tournament uh, a good success. Uh, Brad Gilbert was echoing something that me and Mert talked about. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our podcast last week. Mert uh, was also of the favor that the year in championship should be a best of five final. Any views on that? How do you see, uh, you, you actually see tennis I, I, going back to that? I don't, uh, I would love it. Uh, I don't see it happening. I, I, I think that unfortunately one of the things that is, is going to be a theme of the 2020s is how tennis manages to, to balance the elements of you know tradition and continuity and i don't mean tradition in in sort of long trousers and 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 cardigans but the the idea that tennis is a balance between uh quickness and stamina and the the longer matches the five set matches that the men play at the grand slams whether that continues into and beyond the 2020s is a really interesting question because it's been done away with now in the Davis Cup. And you had five set finals. I think that the ESPN crew were talking about this during their commentary of the match today. 
that it wasn't just five set finals at the the ATP World Tour finals, but you had them regularly in Masters finals and in uh, other tournaments as well. I remember when Federer won his first Basel title in 2006, he beat Gonzalez in straight sets, but in best of five. But the ATP began to do away with those um, in 2007. And, you know, now you don't have any finals that are best of five. The Davis Cup retained a best of five format until very recently. But now the, uh, the new PK Cup, which is coming up next week, will we'll just have three set matches. And I believe the ATP Cup as well is going to be three setters. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tennis has taken, you know, a shift towards a shorter version and there's always a, and, and I think this trend is going to stay. I, I don't uh, disagree with you at all. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Matteo Berrettini uh, before Matt uh-huh. joins the conversation. He had his debut and uh, uh, was uh, dealt a rough hand with uh, Novak Djokovic and then followed by Roger Federer, but then he was able to beat uh, Dominic team. Uh, talk about his year. I know you've been quite bullish on his chances. You you know you liked his aggressive play, his forehand serve, mm-hmm. and even the ability to come to the net. Uh, talk about his year. Well, he started, I think, outside the top fifty, and um, is one of the few players who can have won a challenger tournament in the same year that he qualified for the World Tour Finals. Uh, I don't think he was on on many people's radar screen, I I think, until the grass court season, and he did very well on grass courts. Um, He's a a big lad, you know, just just a big unit, uh, huge upper body, relies, as you say, on the the serve and uh, big forehand. Not yet a terrific mover and he can be exposed on the backhand particularly uh against against deep backhands he's he's got a two-handed backhand but but that's the shot that tends to break down under pressure so it it's been a breakout year for him um i wonder if in his sophomore year when you know he's going to be uh a top 10 seed for several tournaments to come whether you know, people will have done their scouting on him and have figured him out, or whether he's still on an upward trajectory and can repeat in 2020 and 2021. And uh, let's also talk about the other two players who we haven't talked about in this tournament. Sasha Zverev, the defending champion, uh, has taken quite a senior crowd in many of his uh, uh, not-so-famous wins this year, and then he did well to qualify uh, for London, uh, despite uh, his form uh, leading up to this tournament. Uh, he won two matches, lost two matches. He himself said next year he could expect uh, some of the new guys contending, and he sheepishly put his name as a fourth person in that with Medvedev, Sitsipas, and Dominic, and he said, I'm there too. So that's what the narrative has been for Zverev. Uh, for the last two years, leading up to the beginning of this year, he was the most talented youngster along with Kyrgios, but he was far more consistent, and now there are three men who have passed him in terms of consistency. And everybody would love to have a barrier that Zverev has. If this is what a barrier is, you're like top eight right. in the world. <laughs> but right. uh, uh, you think uh, we, we can expect him resolving some of 
the inconsistencies, uh, if uh, the fall was any indication, will he be back in the mix? Yes, I don't know. I think that that he's going. I, I think he goes into twenty uh, twenty with a smaller question mark against his name that he had at the end of the U.S. Open, but but still a question mark. So he, as you said, he he, he had two wins and two losses. He beat Nadal in the first match he played and. Nadal, possibly a little bit of ring rusty. He'd taken some time off uh, to, to heal an abdominal injury and wasn't sure that, that he was going to be fully fit. So he was going to give it his best try. Um, did play and won two matches. But against Verev looked a bit, you know, a, a bit rusty. And then in, you know, his second match, he was manhandled by Tsitsipas. You know, basically... Um, one of the few matches this week that that really wasn't a big contest. So there's a bit of a question mark uh, about who would show up in the final match of the group with between Medvedev and Zverev. Medvedev by that time had been eliminated. Zverev still had a chance to qualify if he won. And Zverev played very well and did get through, so then took on team. But one of the things that, that stood, out about, stood out about Zverev this year is he's, he's really started double faulting, which as a, you know, a former 4.5 level tennis player, I can sympathize with. I once played a doubles match in which I served eight times and the ball didn't go into court once. So we lost the game at love because I had double faulted four times. So seeing... Top-class players, double fault. I, I have more sympathy than I have uh, disdain. But seeing Zverev in the first set against team in his semi-final be you know, more the better player. If you'd have had that uh, set scored on points in a boxing sense, then Zverev would have been ahead on points. But he got break point down and... Team, you know, must have been, uh, you know, I was going to say 15 metres behind the court, but he was probably only five metres behind the court. Team a long way behind the court. And Zverev, you know, tries to spin in a second serve and spun it into the net. And it, it was a face palm moment. And then you thought, OK, he's still got work to do. So Zverev didn't manage to make the final, didn't manage to defend what had been up to this point his biggest trophy um so he's you know he's he's going to be an enigma i know that he had off the 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 court issues he's apparently going to have uh, some eye surgery uh during the break he's going to do some exhibitions with federer in south america before that so we'll see what which version of sasha zverev comes through in in 2020 the talent is there the the athleticism is there he's got a monster first serve um but he, he he's he's still for my money way too defensively minded and settles back somewhere between three to four meters behind the baseline and basically tries to outlast his opponent and against really good players um 
that's not going to work a lot of the time. Okay, looks like we have Matt uh, back on the podcast as well. Hey, Matt, are you there? Yep. Okay, so let's keep this conversation going. And Andrew, uh, third year in a row, there's a new first-time champion of the year in champ- at the championships, uh, Dimitrov, uh, Zverev, and now uh, Sitsipas. This is a question for you both. You can both maybe take it. Uh, Andrew can go first and Matt, uh, a minute each. Uh, I don't have a shot clock, but you know there are a few questions coming. So, so compared to what happened to the last two winners, Dimitrov, you know, continued to, you know, his career has been a mystery, and uh, Zverev uh, has taken a nosedive. Is there any consequential value of Tsitsipas's win? Do we see him contending at the bigger stages? I know it's a little unfair; he's only 21, but uh, these kind of performances do set up these kind of expectations. So, Andrew, you can go first. Um. I, I, I am going to say firmly, I don't know. Um, I haven't yet seen Tsitsipas do what Medvedev did early this year, which is make five or six finals in a row. And Medvedev um, went from losing to Nadal in Canada to winning Cincinnati to making the final at the U.S. Open, in which he lost to Nadal, but came back to take it to a fifth set. And then he went on to win in Shanghai. So that showed me that Medvedev knew what it took to win and to get to the final week in, week out. I haven't yet seen Stefanos do that. Matt, you agree? I, I also join Andrew in saying I firmly don't know. It's kind of like talking about WTA tennis in general. Um, you know, going through one cycle, going through one season, uh, it, it is its own journey. And we've seen Zverev in particular. You know, he won a couple of Masters in 2017, uh, you know, then took his lumps to a certain degree in 2018. And then, you know, in 2019, what happened with Zverev, had something in part to do with uh, off-court controversies in his personal life not being nearly as settled uh, as he had hoped it it would be. Um, And so to that extent, you know, Zverev's 2019 struggles weren't so much about tennis. But but nevertheless, with Tsitsipas in particular, um, you know, he's going to be a target this season. And now so now he gets has to get ready for a year in which everybody, you know, is going to be gunning for him. Uh, he, you know, he went through a three month period, June through, I mean, you know, early June through early September in which, you know, he got, he got knocked back, but you know, that was just like a season or or at least a segment of a season. You know, this is now going to be a new year with a whole new set of challenges. And, you know, he's going to be defending semifinal points in Australia. So he's going to be a target specifically at the Australian open. What happens if he doesn't do well, what happens if he doesn't handle the pressure there? And, and really Sitsipas has had on a smaller scale, uh, the major tournament limitations that have also applied as Zverev. I mean, he did make the, the semis in Australia had a good French open, but you know, he didn't have the result to match. I mean, obviously Stan Wawrinka, you know, played, really well played really courageously uh, in that particular fourth round match. But nevertheless, uh, you know, Sitsipas, we didn't see him do anything at Wimbledon. We didn't see him do anything at the U S open. 
So it, it's all very new. And I think that, you know, I would definitely expect Dominic Team to make a hard court major semifinal in 2020. I'm going to expect that of Team, given yeah. where he is in his career, given the improvements he's made on hard court surfaces, uh, you know, not just hard court in general, but also indoor hard courts. He's become a better indoor hard court player. Uh, I'm going to expect that of team, but for Sitsipas and also Zverev, yeah, I'm not going to really apply any uh, firm sets of expectations. Um, Australia is a huge proving ground, and I think we're lying to ourselves if we say that we know what's going to happen. Hmm. All right, so let's move uh, to the next question, and uh, that's a two-minute question. And Matt, you can go first. Uh, I, I believe uh, Dominic Team is the leader of the pack whenever we see a new number one. And... Uh, I'm behind his camp. I mean, I'm behind his fortunes and the kind of tennis he's played. Uh, his tennis IQ was discussed on our podcast. His shot selection is much better. Uh, even Andrew confirmed that he's graduated to a very complete package type of player. Uh, so are you buying the stock? Maybe not in 2020, but you see him as a number one candidate of the new lot. Andrew, you can take it. Um, he's a candidate. Um he is one of few people from his generation who has won a big tournament because he beat Federer in uh, Indian Wells this year. And that was a sort of a coming out party for him on hard courts. Won a very good three set win over, over Federer there. And, you know, was within three points of pulling off a world tour finals win after a very good tournament here. So uh, he's got the, he's got the chops. He's got, uh, I think a lot of people are seeing the new coaching um, partnership with Nicholas Massou is, is very important. One of the things that, that I always used to think about team was that, he, he had a great ball-striking ability, but his decision-making wasn't that great. And in the last six months or so, that to me is, is the thing that has improved the most of all. And you know, his ability today, after Tsitsipas went on a roll in the second set and early in the third set to find himself and come back into it, you know, that spoke very well for, for him. Uh, he is going to be a threat on clay for the next um, four or five years, probably, um, as with every player for the last 15 years, the presence of Nadal and more recently Djokovic in Roland Garros means it, it, it's quite hard to talk about someone like Team as being a favorite going into Roland Garros. But he's one of the players that you would typically pencil in for a semi-final spot, particularly if he's going to be seated in, in the top four. So, so he has a shot at it. Uh, I'm not sure how rapid his rise looks at the moment. And when we get to some of the younger players, not just the younger players who were present in London this week, it's quite possible that over the next year to two years, We'll see some of the players who are significantly younger than him, five or six years younger than team, having a much more rapid upward track. I think uh, Matt's having connectivity issues, so let's carry the conversation. 
Okay. Uh, I have to edit this, yeah. So, Andrew, uh, looks like for your generation analysis, this tournament is a good case study. Uh, how, you know, we've witnessed the most dominant of two eras, Generation Fed, uh, represented by Federer himself, and then the most winningest generation of Djokovic, Nadal, Murray. Uh, so what does generation charts look like, and uh, is there a rise in ranking points? Uh, f- uh, fill us uh, some of the information that came through in the last two weeks of the year. Well, the one thing that, that stood out for me is that when you look at the eight players who qualified, as everyone noticed, the average age was much younger this year than it had been in many previous years in the last five or six years. You had four players from the group that I call Generation Nick, players born between 1994 and 1998. Uh, and those were Zverev, Medvedev, Berrettini and Sitsipas. So that that group of four made up half the uh, the contingent. You had Dominic Team, who was the one representative from Generation Gregor, um, which was players born between 1989 and 1993. Two Generation Rafa players, Djokovic and Nadal himself born between 1984 and 1998, and one generation Fed player, Federer, born in, in, in 1981. And, and I think this was, uh, what was interesting was that with Federer's elimination and then Nadal's and Djokovic's elimination at the, the round robin stage, that there, there were some ridiculous stats about this was the first uh, ATP final, or this was maybe the fifth ATP final in about 10 years that hadn't fe- at, at this level and hadn't featured one of the, the big three players. So certainly a sense of potential for a generation rollover. Now with Tsitsipas winning and Zverev making the semifinals and then the round robin, you can't see it as another breakthrough for the Grigor generation. Um, it might have been nice if team could have carried the flag for them. But you've now got the generation Nick group, not only providing four players, but also with Zverev and now Tsitsipas winning this tournament. Um, this generation has won it twice. Um, Grigor Dimitrov is actually the, the standard bearer for his own name generation. He's the only player from that group to have made, uh, to have won a World Tour Finals trophy. Uh, And as we know, Generation Gregor has provided no uh, Grand Slam winners yet. And this is the point in time that their average age now, the, the... Average date of birth is 1991, so their average age at the end of 2019 is 28 is 28 years old. The the Gregor generation is beginning to age out, while the the Nick generation, average age 23, is really coming into their prime now. And the the next generation up, Generation Felix, for players born between 1999 and 2003, some of whom played in Milan uh, last week. This is 
what I think that you're going to see in the early 2020s, um, the Nick generation coming into their own, the uh, generation Felix potentially rising very fast. And we'll see whether the big three, you know, can keep their fingernails on the, the big trophies or, or, or whether they're, they're ripped off them and, and youth has its day. Uh, I think very well captured there, but I would like just to add something for Generation Grigor and Kei Nishikori, those guys. Uh, the the Nadal Djokovic generation is well into their early 30s and still the top two names in the game. And Roger Federer is still carrying you know, his generation and playing elite-level tennis. Uh, so maybe at 828, uh, Generation Grigor can expect the best lies ahead, even though the numbers say otherwise. So on that note, Andrew, let me ask you about Rafa Nadal. Year-end world number one, 11-year uh, gap uh, since he did it first. Quite a phenomenal achievement. Uh, of course, he himself has said that his career was not supposed to go this long, according to many. And that was the narrative we all, uh, I don't know, we all discussed. We all even semi-believed maybe seven, eight years ago that Nadal's not going to be uh, that good a force at 33. Well, he's world number one. Talk about that. <laughs> Well, so back in 2005, uh, Andre Agassi qualified for the year-end championships. So did Nadal. Nadal finished number two that year, but he had a foot injury and didn't play uh, in Shanghai, didn't play uh, in the Australian Open that followed. And Agassi was interviewed, uh, I think, in a press conference and said that he feared that Nadal was writing checks that his body couldn't cash. So this was back in 2005, when Nadal, by the way, won not only a role on Garros, but, but won four Masters tournaments that year. So the, the, the thing that it looked like early on was that his you know, amazing physicality would... would kind of be like a supernova it would burn bright for a short period and then um exhaust the fuel and and that would be that and i think that nadal you know possibly back in 2013 or so when he was 2012 2013 when he was having a bout of physical issues if you'd have said to him you'll go into the next decade uh as the world number one and you know, beyond the cusp of winning your 20th Grand Slam, uh, Nadal would have given you one of those raised eyebrows that he, he does at press conferences when he's asked stupid questions. Um, you know, just what can you say? He's, he, he becomes the first ATP player in the open era to be number one in three decades. So the 2000s, uh, 2010s, and now the 2020s. Um, if he had, the thing with Nadal is always, you know, if he had been completely fully fit at the end of the season, would this have been the season uh, that uh, he lifted the, the World Tour Finals trophy, which is, you know, really, I, I know that he hasn't completed the full master set yet, but of, of the big trophies, I think the World Tour Finals is, is the one that, that's gotten away from him. He's made the finals twice, losing to Federer and to Djokovic. Um, but he's got to go into 2020, you know, thinking that, um, you know, I'm 
you know, I'm ready. I, I am going to be fully competitive, which I think is what he cares for the most. I, I, I don't think, I don't think he and Djokovic and Federer, you know, have that they're, they're not like prisoners in a cell, you know, scratching off Grand Slam championship and Masters titles quite the same way that their their fans do. So, um, you know, wh whoever finishes with the most Masters, with the most Grand Slams, with the you know, that's something I think more that the the, the fans care about. I think they as players want to be competing for the big titles as long as they possibly can. And Nadal will go into 2020, you know, basically, I'm, I'm not sure if he, if he is going to think that Wimbledon is as big a chance as the other tournaments, although he played a memorable semi-final against Novak uh, a year ago, so Nadal has got to look at, at 2020 and think, you know, bring it on. Yeah, he just lost eight matches this year, and that's uh, quite a testimony to the kind of consistency he's had. Uh, even going back to Australian Open 2017, he doesn't lose many matches. And uh, of course, uh, I'm of the opinion if Novak Djokovic is fully dialed in and is playing his best tennis, he's the man to beat in most tournaments. But Rafa Nadal, you know, his numbers. Uh, and he actually took the number one ranking away from Djokovic. That kind of shows uh, the consistency and his reach throughout the tour, throughout the calendar, how how consistent and how good he is. So I think that's going to be the theme next year. And uh, the newer generation led by Dominic team would be challenging uh, these guys uh, on a weekly basis. And, you know, we all will be witnesses. So let's move on to Novak Djokovic. Uh, clearly, you know, he's... Uh, not the same player that he was in 2015, but to me, he's still the best player when he's firing uh, to his fullest. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, he finishes the year as number two, but when he's dialed in, uh, I still think he's uh, the man to beat on most tournaments he enters. I couldn't disagree. Uh, I think if you play on clay at Roland Garros against a healthy Rafael Nadal, um, I'm not sure which side the coin flip would come down in terms of picking who the favourite is. And I think one thing Djokovic did very successfully in his peak years is basically take away Nadal's um, confidence, even on clay, that, that he was going to come out on, on top against him. I think Djokovic established a level of psychological dominance over Nadal and then recently over Federer as well. Uh, the big matches that they've played uh, in the last four years, Djokovic has won them all. Uh, and I know Federer was very pleased to win uh, a few days ago in what was effectively a quarterfinal. And I think one of the things that Federer basically said in the press conference afterwards or in his interview afterwards was, you know, kind of nice to win one. That that's how effective Djokovic has been, you know, particularly when when he's up for it, playing against the the very best players. Uh, I think one of the things that we're starting to see for Djokovic and Nadal, and it's certainly true of Federer now, is it is it is very much harder for them at the age that they are to 
to be as consistent week in and week out as they were in their mid to late 20s. The, the, they were the players who basically um, you know, could, could string together sequences of four, five, six tournament wins. And it's possible that, that one of them will do that. If one of them does do it, the likeliest player to do it right now, I think, is Novak. But it's harder for them now. And Nadal is 33. Uh, Djokovic is 32. In prior decades, uh, you would have given them uh, an accolade for making the semifinals of a major tournament. And now they're still consistently competing and winning the finals. Uh, for Nadal fans, uh, a, a, a quick apology. I said that I was talking about Wimbledon and the fact that he made the semi-final against Djokovic in 2018. He made the semi-final in 2019 and lost to Federer. Um, so it, that's just further proof that uh, Djokovic's winning Wimbledon this year has caused me to blank the Wimbledon 2019 from my brain, apart from uh, two match points that Federer had in, in that match. <laughs> but Djokovic, as, as Nadal, is going to look at 2020 and say, um, I have a lot to look forward to. All right, so let's uh, move the conversation to Roger Federer. And uh, Matt Zemeck calls you the, the true fedologist, if that's the term, because you uh, are known to cover Roger Federer and uh, your commentary is quite objective. So let's talk about the year Federer had. He entered, I believe... 13 tournaments, which is as full a schedule as he's played in some time, uh, won four tournaments and uh, famously or infamously served for the Wimbledon title, had two match points. And uh, and again, uh, I would also like to add uh, his win over Novak. That's how much it means, even though some people are saying it's a quarterfinal or a round-robin match, but that's how much value of that match is to Federer. So just view the Federer year with some of the highlights and what uh, the Fed nation can expect uh, when 2020 rolls around as uh, the man is going to be playing some exhibitions with Sasha Zverev in Latin America. Yes. So, as you say, it was a, a pretty complete uh, season for Federer. He, he played the clay for the first time in uh, three years. He'd had an abbreviated clay season in 2016 uh, in which he... Um, decided not to play at Roland Garros and then skipped the clay entirely in 2017-2018. Made the semi-finals at Roland Garros, lost in straight sets to Nadal on an extremely windy day. And, you know, you'd have, I think, preferred to see them play in calmer conditions. I don't think the result would have been different. Uh, but it, yeah, tough day for both of them. Uh, and then for Team and Djokovic in the second semi-final, um, Federer started the season reasonably well. He uh, got to the Indian Wells final, uh, where he lost seven-five to uh, to Team in a pretty solid match. Then went to uh, Miami and after a little bit of a shaky start against Radu Albot, cruised through the next five rounds. John Isner, who was his opponent in the Miami final, uh, had a foot issue after about uh, six or seven games and, and the match didn't really live up to full billing because of that. That was Federer's 
um, won a big title this year. Uh, he, he won in Basel, which he has done in the past. Uh, he um, also won in Halle. So, so those are two 500 tournaments where he's got very strong records. Um, didn't have that many um, odd losses. I, I actually was in Cincinnati and was in the stadium when he lost to Rublev, and Rublev basically blew him off the court. That was a bit surprising. He, he went down to Dimitrov in the US Open in a quarterfinal, which I think many of us were surprised that he didn't come through that one. Had a little bit of a back twinge that uh, afterwards, you know, possibly that could be seen to cost him. Um, was in a victorious Labour Cup squad as well, and that's something that's going to be important to his future. Uh, when you get to the, the World Tour finals with Nadal and Djokovic out and Federer in the semifinals, I think a lot of Fed fans might have thought this is his year, which would have been the first time that he'd won it, uh, I think, since uh, 2010. 11. It was 2011 when he won it? Yeah, a bit time. Yeah. Okay. So the first time in eight years or so, but this was the third time in a row that he's fallen at the, the semi-final stage. And I think he was very frustrated that he couldn't bring his best tennis against Tsitsipas. Uh, and, and this is, I think, where Federer is at the moment. He can bring his best tennis, but only fitfully. And... I, I would be delighted as a longtime Federer fan and follower to see him have a great 2020. He says that he's closer to the finish line than he is to the starting line, which isn't surprising given that the starting line was in the 1990s. Uh, I think one of the questions that, that we have is, does he finish the 2020 season in good playing order, in good health? Is he does he qualify for uh, the World Tour Finals? Does he make a deep run at one or more majors? I think if either Nadal or Djokovic wins two Grand Slams or more in 2020, that will not be stunning. I think if Federer wins one Grand Slam in 2020... I will be pleased, but more surprised than if one of those other guys wins too. Yeah, I think uh, you covered quite a ground for all three, and you did mention that Nadal and Djokovic, as dominant as they are, they are also uh, not facing a challenge, but it just uh, gets harder to bring your best week in, week out. And Djokovic has said, I think, in few of the press conferences that he's, uh, you know, peaking for the majors. You know, he's always have, but I think that's where the focus lies. And even Federer, I think the conversation. Uh, this is a fan question, but I'll just uh, throw it out there. Uh, and I'll even quote Marat Safin in his retirement year. He said, when you get, he was losing a lot of matches, and he said, when you get older, uh, sometimes the decision making isn't as instinctive. And mind you, Safin was close to 30 when he retired, and Federer is way past that. So mm. uh, my, my question is kind of like a little messy here, but I think on a daily basis, like he peaked for Djokovic, and some people said, oh, how does he lose? One, I think Federer played a decent match, had a lot of looks. 
But I, I still think, in my view, Ferrer still gets up for the Djokovic and Nadal matches. And it's not by choice. I think with a lot of times, he's just there and his best tennis doesn't fire. Maybe it's a function of age or maybe it's just the mileage. He's still a darn good player. He's number three in the world on a given day. He's beaten both his arch rivals. But uh, I think, uh, like you said, playing four or five matches in seven days or eight days, that's a tall order, I think. Uh, that's where some of his close misses have been Indian Wells and... Uh, even the opportunity, the World Tour final, uh, his loss against Tsitsipas, throw some light on that. No, I, I, I think that you know we're both in what's called violent agreement. Um, it is, it is harder as you get older to be as consistent as you used to be. Now the the you know beating. Nadal in four sets in Wimbledon and I don't know the next time that we will see uh, a Wimbledon final go to 12 all in the fifth set it was the first time it was played out as a tiebreaker um, watching the fifth set against Djokovic um, at the Wimbledon final Federer was down a break and then you know, even the even the score in the fifth set, then led by a break, and Djokovic was able to break back, and I think that made it eight all, and I thought Federer was completely out of gas, and in in previous matches against Djokovic, after he'd surrendered uh, match points, he'd gone away tamely, but he you know he scrapped his way through to to twelve all. I think he. I think he may have had a break point very late in that match, but Djokovic outfought him and uh, was the deserved winner. So it's not as if Federer, you know, now is. I don't see him at at, at the stage where it's you know we we just should be happy that he shows up at tournaments. I think he it, he says he's excited for the 2020 season. Uh, no reason not to believe him. Um, but if you said that one of the, you know, two of the big three or one of the big three was going to have a, a big 2020, most people would be surprised if that person was Federer. But then very few people, I think, had Federer inked in as a favorite against Djokovic on Thursday. Uh, Djokovic had looked magnificent beating Berrettini just had, had basically made Berrettini look like a junior in his first match. Um, and so I think that most people expected that Djokovic would, you know, maybe have a tussle against Federer, but had, a, you know, a very, you know, a, a winning record of something like four or five on the trot against Federer. And so for Federer to be able to, to beat Djokovic on Thursday... It was surprising. So with all of these players, uh, Nadal has come back so many times. Djokovic, I remember when he was going through the, the injury troubles that he had and the coaching difficulties he had before he brought uh, Marjan Vida back to work with him. I was talking to Djokovic fans and saying, you know, there's 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 three ways that this can go, and I give them equal probability. There's a there's a, a prob there's a possibility that Djokovic just does not come back to the top level again. 
there's a possibility that he comes back and he wins a few big tournaments, but he doesn't come back as a dominant player. Or he could come back and be a dominant player. And he's shown that that, that third outcome, that Novak Djokovic has come back as a dominant ATP player. So even at the age of 38, could Federer do it? I don't think many people gave him a chance in 2017. So I don't expect it, but you can't write any of these guys off. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a harsh lesson most of us have learned uh, uh, at, at our own peril when we have discussed the demise of uh, either men. Uh, so on that note, Andrew, I think we did cover quite a lot uh, of topics. We talked, you know, the big three, we talked the generations, and we talked team Tsitsipas, the ATP finals. I think this is a, this is a fun podcast, uh, and uh, we'll have segment two with Matt Semek. But, uh, Andrew, I thank you for joining uh, the podcast on a very short notice, uh, as usual. And, uh, yeah, let's keep the conversation going, uh, and we'll probably talk uh, before Australian Open is around. Thanks, Sakib. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Matt. Welcome back on the show. Uh, this is the second segment. Uh, if you have gotten this far, and this is Sakib and Matt Semek continuing the conversation. So Tomas Burdick uh, was uh, honored yesterday at the ATP Finals along with other retirees this year, but his retirement is the latest news. The other men who were there were already retired or ended their season earlier in the year. So let's uh, pay tribute to Tomas Burdick, one of the more dominant player outside of the top three, top four guys that we've spoken about. Uh, when you look at Burdick, where do you want to start from? What are your early assessment? Was his career a success? Fire away. Well, when we get to um, appreciating careers and whether they were successful or not, we always have to start with the disclaimer that making tens of millions of dollars is on a general level a success. Uh, that much has to be acknowledged that uh, he's done, he, Tomas Berdik has done very well for himself. And uh, anyone growing up wanting to be a professional tennis player, to have the kind of career he had, that is certainly within certain confines and general standards of professional excellence, you know, and being a top five, top eight player for several years on the ATP tour, you know, one of the eight best players in the world for a long time, that's very successful and, and uh, has to be acknowledged and should certainly not be ignored. Now, having said all that, this was a guy who, in my opinion, could have won several majors, and he didn't even get one. I mean, he will long be regarded as one of the very best tennis players never to win a major. And, you know, people have a well-defined sense of Verdik's career, and you will find a lot of very familiar points of argumentation. And, and one of the points of argumentation that will come up is that mental toughness is a skill. Uh, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. I mean, I do think that you... It's something that you cultivate, but it's not something which which comes naturally. Um, so, you know, it is it is certainly something that that you have to develop. But I don't regard it as uh, a weapon in the same way that a forehand's a weapon. That it, that it really is a different kind of component to an athlete's you know overall uh, identity. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, some people can hit a tennis ball better than others. Um, you know, to that extent, Tomas Birdik 
could hit a tennis ball a lot better than just about any other player out there during his career. I mean, I'd put him up there with Djokovic. I'd put him up there with Federer. He had what I call and what many others would readily recognize as easy power, you know, the ability to hit a ball extremely hard, but to not make it, you know, an overly labored, difficult process. His swings were so smooth from from both wings. Uh, He did not uh, strain or overwork himself in the process of hitting shots. And that's something that not everybody has. And so he had a measure of natural ball striking ability, which far eclipsed uh, a great many of his peers. And for that reason, I think that he underachieved. And you could say that he wasn't that great on defense, but when he had such great first strike capability, Sakib, he usually was not on the back foot during, during a point. He was usually on the front foot, usually dictating, usually being able to sweep the ball to the corners of the court. And with, with, despite those gifts, I think he fell short. And so if we're going to look at a couple of important pivot point moments in his career, I think the two that stand out the most, others can find uh, different examples, but the two that stand out for me, the 2009 Australian Open fourth round against Roger Federer when he led by two sets and he missed that overhead uh, midway through the third set and he lost in five. That was, that was one. And then the second one was the 2014 Australian Open semifinals. He played Stan Wawrinka, who at that time, remember, had not yet won a first major. That was Birdik's really big chance to make a major final. And we know that Rafa wasn't healthy in the final. That could have been the major that Birdik won, and it could have ushered in a period of great prosperity. And you know, so there were a few, there were several points in his career where if he had overcome a particular challenge. I think that he would have done extremely well because he would have been a lot more confident. But I think that 2009 loss to Federer in Australia really haunted him. And uh, and then the 2014 uh, semis in Australia were, were the ultimate missed opportunity in terms of a draw being there for him to take advantage of. And he couldn't do it. So obviously a success on many levels. But I think this has to be recognized as a career marked by one of the very best players never to win a major. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. I mean, and uh, if you look at the numbers, there's like 12 years in a row that he finished in the top 20 out of those, I think seven years were top 10. And uh, like you said, he had one of the best looking crown strokes. I've seen him plenty of times at practice code. He could absolutely effortlessly plump, you know, pummel the ball and, it was a sight to behold if you, you know, you play tennis yourself, you're a tennis fan. One of the cleanest strokes. Of course, serve was his problem, the ball toss. And then there were like moments like Lendl not coaching him when he totally requested Lendl and Lendl later on joining Andy Murray. So let's look at, uh, take a deeper dive in his career. The numbers uh, sometimes don't tell a full story, but uh, usually they do for some people. So he won 13 tour titles, lost another 15 of those, made a major final in uh, and, and, and some would make the argument, which is pretty common in this era, that uh, the top three, four, including Andy Murray, and, in, and you just pointed out Stan Wawrinka in 2014, if he wasn't born in this era, he would have won. And that's like a fruitless exercise. But if you look at uh, the previous era, Roger Federer was the dominant player in the 2000s. If Burdick was his age, he would have run into Federer. And then also Andy Roddick, who he didn't have a, you know, I think he has a losing record against Andy Roddick, 5-6, and Burdick won the last three matches when Roddick was... Uh, in his last two years. 
So those arguments are always there. But uh, was he the kind of guy you think if he was playing his best tennis, he would beat everyone? Or in this era, that wasn't good enough, even on a given day? Well, you know, in this era, it wasn't good enough in, in part because Berdyk had uh, a pronounced pattern to get to a point where he had a, a big three player, maybe not on the ropes, but certainly in a difficult position, and then he wouldn't come through. I mean, we, we've encountered many times over the years, and this happened in the uh, 2000, uh, 2018 Australian Open quarterfinals against Federer. Birdick was serving for the first set. He played a shaky service game, and Federer was able to, to escape with that first set, and then you knew that Federer was going to move easily through the second and third sets. So you know, it goes back to the inner game of tennis. Uh, I would put Burdick's, you know, physical skills up up against anybody on any day, you know. But but it was always that moment at either five four or six five in a first set uh, when you know he couldn't seal the deal. I mean, he came to that intersection point so many times in his career, and he just didn't handle it often enough. You know that that really is the major point of separation between him now. I will say, to be fair to him, this was another a different kind of instance. He beat Roger Federer at night at the U.S. Open in 2012. This was in the quarterfinals, and that was something very rare. Uh, it was extremely hard to beat Federer at night at the U.S. Open. We've obviously, since Arthur Ashe Stadium put in the roof, it's been easier to beat Federer at night for a whole host of reasons. But back in 2012, that was a very rare thing. So Birdick beats Federer. He has this great win. He's in the U.S. Open semifinals. He's playing Murray. Uh, you know, so it was a very winnable match for him. And yet what happens? You might recall, Saka, that that was the weekend of uh, the hurricane uh, coming through. And uh, we had like, you know, 40, 45 mile an hour winds whipping through Ash. And of course, Ash in 2012 was an open bowl. So Birdick never really got to show his stuff. Neither he nor Murray had the chance to really play, you know, genuine tennis. That was just trying to, you know, survive a windstorm. Uh, and so he was deprived of that particular opportunity. So, you know, he's been bitterly unlucky on a few occasions, but most of the time it's been hand, trying to handle those really tense uh, moments, and he just didn't handle those moments as well as others did. No, very well said. And then, Matt, uh, I'm sure there are like, a lot of uh, younger listeners uh, who've been following the tennis and uh, the tune into our podcast. So I would just uh, want to get your views on what uh, American prolific writer John Wertheim, he compared Burdick in his early days as Safin Jr. So did you see any similarities there? Or uh, that comparison kind of went away quickly. But I was a big reader of the Wertheim blog, and it was always, uh, Burdick was always termed as Safin Jr., you know, like when these guys were coming up. And Safin was still active. So did you see the similarities? And uh, and if uh, where, where does the similarities end in terms of ability or what's between the years? Well, um, that, uh, you know, the easy power is the obvious link between Birdik and, and Safin. Uh, I think Safin, the, 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 the basic difference there is that on, on the occasions, on the few occasions when Safin encountered a really big moment, he relished it. I think that to a slight but but real degree, Safin relished the spotlight uh, to a degree that Berdyk never really did. Um, you know, what Safin did against Sampras at the 2000 
U.S. Open and also what he did at the 2005 Australian when he won his other major. Um, you know, there was just a, a an enjoyment of pressure. And that, in many ways, gets down to, you know, what separates not just the big three from everyone else, but also a two major winner such as Safin from Birdik and also another player we've paid tribute to uh, a few years, a few months ago, Nicholas Almagro. I never got the sense that Almag- either Almagro or Birdik just totally relished being in that spotlight. It, it just so consistently felt like a burden and they weren't able to turn that corner mentally where they thought of that pressure as a privilege. Ne- just never struck me that way. And um, so, you know, Safin, there were at least a few times when I when I could see that, you know, he he liked he liked the pressure. Now, you know, he didn't like the scrutiny. He didn't like the grind of, of daily tour life. But on, on the occasions when he had a moment, I felt that he enjoyed being there. And Birdie, I, I didn't get that same sense. Yeah, I, I think I agree with what you said. I'd like to just add my two cents because I followed the comparison early on. Uh, of course, Burdick had a more consistent career. Safin, I think, ended year and top 10 only three times, of course, and he was plagued by many an injury. But Burdick didn't have a serve, and Safin was dialed in in the matches you mentioned, and even the five-set battle, which I call the modern-day tennis. I think that's where it changed in the 2004 semis against Agassi, when him and Agassi were just bludgeoning the ball. Safin had a very reliable serve, which was a weapon. Burdick's serve went away in key moments against Novak, Roger, and Rafa, and even Andy. I think that's, to me, where, you know, and you, you talked about, you know, when people don't like surfboarding and people think clutch serving is uh, not a skill or is overrated or whatever. But I think in Burdick's case, for a big guy at 6'5", the serve was his undoing. A lot of times he could have gotten the serve to his rescue, and I think that's where the big difference is why Murat Safin won five one thousands and two majors and Burdick, you know, was not as successful, even though he won, I think, his biggest win is Bercy Indoors in 2005, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's there are many kinds of athletic profiles, profiles of athletes. And one of them is that, you know, the one of the profiles is the inconsistent player, but the, the player who, when he gets on a run, completes that run. And so... While Berdyk was definitely a lot more consistent than Safin was over a longer period of time and deserves to be lauded for that, you got to give Safin the point, the specific point that when he did get on a run, he really maximized that run. You know, when he was when he was in a groove, when things were going well, he would he would complete that run, and that's in many ways what Berdyk just wasn't quite able to do. That when he would get on a run at a at a big tournament. He would then go up against a big three player um, in a quarterfinal or, you know, sometimes he'd get into a semifinal against a non-big three player and he'd get to a pressure moment and all of the good free-flowing tennis he had been playing, it would come to a halt in one pressure-packed moment. So Safin, you know, was just able to complete that run a little more. He was able to convince himself and tell himself, you know, hey, this is this is all going great. I'm going to ride it as far as I can go. And Burdick just had that inner voice, which caused him to stop and perhaps overthink situations. And and that's the measure of difference between a two major career and a zero major career. All right. So I think that's uh, some valid uh, points there again, Matt. So let's wrap this conversation up uh, by making comparisons. 
with uh, the other two men that Burdick has been clubbed along, uh, who were, uh, you know, at the receiving end for the, the wrath of the big three and Andy Murray, which is David Ferrer. We already talked about him in May when he called it a day. And Joe Wilfrid Songa, you know, he's also pretty close. I think every year you think he's injury plagued. So let's talk about Burdick's comparison. Uh, was he the best of this lot? Or if uh, another way to shape this question is, out of these three, did he have the most weapons and is the most likely man to not win a major? I think he had, I think he had the biggest, I think he had the biggest, most consistent weapons. Uh, you know, certainly a bigger game than Ferrer and, and more, and a more consistent weapon than Sanga, because I think, you know, Birdik's, Birdik's two-handed backhand was just a much more reliable shot than, than Sanga's. And Sanga, Sanga, you got the sense during his, his matches, during his career, you know, which obviously is still going, but, um, you know, Sanga could spray shots. Sanga's shot selection uh, could sometimes go haywire. Um, Birdik, you know, could just hit those solid bread and butter cross-court backhands all day long, and he could do so with a lot more power than Ferrer could, and Ferrer obviously enjoyed that same kind of tennis, hitting the endless cross-court backhands. Um, but Birdie could do so more powerfully, uh, and you know, with his tall frame, you know, it just it just didn't seem like a an overly difficult process for him. So, you know, I think that that Sanga, uh, you know, was the ultimate shot maker. You know, the most creative, um, and and Ferrer, you know, hung his hat on court coverage, defense, and consistency. Um, but I think Berdick had, you know, the most reliable, heavy, uh, emphatic weapons. Uh, certainly a much more weaponized tennis player than Ferrer was. So you know, that, that's how I view the, the three of them who were, you know, obviously stalwarts in the top eight for several years. I think uh, well said, and I, I don't have much to disagree with the notion uh, the only thing I would like to take from the Matt Semek book is that uh, in this conversation that Sanga relished the big stage, according to me, more than Burdick. He's, you know, he's a crowd pleaser. He shows up for these big matches. Not that Tomas didn't, but uh, Tomas did play a Wimbledon final, which is, you know, a great achievement by itself. And he, you know, mixed it up with the very best uh, on a given day. And I think uh, it's an end to a very proud career. He He left it all out there. We can disagree on the possible level of what his achievements could have been. But overall, I think uh, a very solid career with 500 wins, 12 straight years in top 20, and a Wimbledon final. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, the one big regret or the one big deficit, um, which I think led to Birdick's career being less than it could have been, Yvonne Lendl never being his coach. I mean, that... That stands out to me as one of the big what ifs. What if Lendl and Birdie had had at least at some point managed to get together? Um, we'll never know, and I wish I wish we had gotten the chance to do that. All right. So on that note, let's wrap this up, and uh, we'll be back with another episode uh, the week after. Thanks for listening, and uh, it's Sakib and Matt saying goodbye for now. <laughs>